we don't really know at this point where... We don't know a great deal about the false teaching that was going on in Ephesus, do we? We, We've put a few dots together, uh, but as we read, Timothy was instructed to guard the gospel. Remember the phrase, very uh, cool little title, Guardians of the Gospel is the series name, so that's what Timothy was instructed to do. But here's what we do know about these false teachers. We know these false teachers were quarrelsome, they were divisive, and they promoted controversies. And that's par for the course, isn't it? When it comes to, to false teaching, it divides Christians. Happens all the time. But I guess we could say, too, the truth divides, doesn't it, as well? So these false teachers had, among, amongst other things, they had forbidden marriage. So in chapter 4, verse 3, you can have a read of it as I speak, uh, they forbid marriage. So if marriage was out, that means childbearing was out. That means family life or raising a family. That was out too in the minds of these false teachers. In fact, it would be fair to say that to, or to describe the type of false teaching that Timothy encountered was ascetic. In other words, if you really want to be spiritual, if you really want to be spiritual, you need to withdraw from the world, right? Take yourself out of the world. Nothing good here. Withdraw from the pleasures of the world. Deny marriage. Family, deny yourself certain foods, don't enjoy the good things of this world. Why Paul says those things in 3 and 4. So being super spiritual, these false teachers are saying, at least in the world of these false teachers, meant that you're free from the daily grind, I guess, of work, of family life, of marriage and so on. Now, in the church at Ephesus, it seems that these particular ideas were especially attractive to women promising freedom from such worldly responsibilities. And so Paul writes. Paul writes to this church at Ephesus, and here's this verse we keep coming back to, 3 verse 15. He writes, So you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Well, friends, today, just like last week, as we read the word of God, as, as God speaks to us and we believe that this, this in his word, they're his words, God breathed, as he speaks to us, well, that word will challenge. It will provoke. And like last week, it, it might make us a little bit uncomfortable, maybe even more so. And a special welcome today if you're visiting. Um, <laughs> Tough passage to come, but I hope I'm glad you're here, and um, I'm I'm, uh, I'm glad this is an important passage, and you'll notice a bit of difference between what God says and what the world around us says. Last week I gave you three well, the three statements summing up why this little paragraph in chapter two, verses eleven to fifteen, provokes us so strongly, challenges. Now you might remember this: God says there is authority in God's household. That's the first thing. And we don't like authority, us Aussies. We don't like it very much. And we don't like it, well, we don't like it when it comes to church either. That's the first thing that provokes. The second thing, we said that teaching has authority in God's household. And third, according to God's word, in his church, there is a significant difference between men and women. And that there is a difference at all, well, that, that's a problem for many people as we read this passage Many people in 21st century Australia. And so, in fact, I think any time we hear the word of God, we're left with a choice. 
See, we either continue to conform to the culture of the day, we continue to do that, that's our choice, or we can trust God and his word that God is good and his design for us is good. The word of God challenges. And let's not forget too, the Bible has always challenged the culture of the day. The word of God has always clashed with culture. It did in first century Ephesus and it does today in first century Robertson. So here's our plan. <clears throat> you can grab open in front of you, if you like, an um, outline in the bulletin. I hope you got one of them. And uh, you can follow along that way. There are really, there's five verses, so it's pretty straightforward. We're just going to go through those five verses and use the structure I've given you in the outline. Uh, so we're going to take time to try to get in a bit of detail each verse. And um, it's a structure there in the outline. Have that open in front of you. Uh, we will need to concentrate. Uh, it's going to be a bit of hard work. That's okay, we can do it. If you want to follow on your Bible, I hope you do. The, the Church Bible is page 1175. How about we pray and ask God to help us? Father, we thank you for um, uh, your goodness to us. We thank you, Lord, that you speak to us. And we pray, Lord, today that we would, we would learn more about you um, and your ways and trust you. Uh, it won't be easy because it clashes with the culture that we live in. And it will be a little bit uncomfortable. And we pray that you'd help us with that. In Jesus' name, amen. So point one on your outline there, it says learning in God's household. 2 verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Now there's a sentence that provokes. It might even make you a little uncomfortable. You're saying, might? Might? Yes, it does. Okay, let's, let's notice a few things, shall we? The verse is really about learning. Now we'll get to the women bit in a moment. To be a disciple of Jesus, man or woman, you're a learner. That's what the word means. You're a learner. And Jesus is our teacher. So you see, in God's household, the fundamental activity is learning. Now, of course, we do other things as well, and they're great, but the fundamental activity is learning as disciples of Jesus. Now, follow with me for a moment. If you've got your Bibles open, you can work really hard and come with me. But if God wants all people to come to the knowledge of the truth, remember 2 verse 4? If God appointed Paul to be a teacher of the true faith of the nations in 2 verse 7, if we drift away from the truth and make a shipwreck of our lives like Hymenaeus and Alexander in 1 verse 19, if it's the truth of the gospel on which the household of God is built and holds up, remember 3 verse 15, then the most important thing we do as God's household, as God's church, is to learn. Now, for many people, uh, you, maybe you've heard this, that the reason why we come to church is to worship. You might have heard that. We come to church to worship. Well, in one sense we do, but the Bible is pretty clear that our whole lives are an act of spiritual worship. Romans chapter 12. This is only a very small percentage of our whole lives. I, I, I believe it's about two hours, give or take. Um, that's how long the sermon will be this morning. No, just kidding. Um, about two hours of 168 weeks, 168 hours in the week, right? It's a very small percentage of our whole lives. See, what, what church is? The, well, the truth is, as we honour God and obey him, that's what worship is, we do that as we go from here. So church prepares us to do that better. So I wonder how many of us came this morning to learn? How many, how many of you came this morning to learn? Or perhaps you think you've got no more to learn. I don't know. 
Well, what sort of learning then are we talking about? What ought to characterise the learning done in God's household, the manner in which we learn? Well, have a look at it. Look at verse 11. In quietness and full submission. That's how we learn. It's not really a reference to making or not making noise. Uh, It's the same word we came across in 2 verse 2. Peaceful and quiet lives. So when we come together as God's household, we learn peacefully. We don't learn aggressively. We don't learn with an argumentative frame of mind. We learn in humility. Likewise, and the two words can be used interchangeably, really, learning in full submission means to sit under the teaching and not sit over it. Do you see the difference? We sit under the teaching and we don't sit over it. Now, why have such an attitude when when we come together as God's household? Well, because the teaching we're talking about is the teaching of the word of God. And there's no teaching like it in the world. The healthy teaching we've talked about that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Remember that phrase we looked at in chapter 1? Which he entrusted to the apostle Paul. That teaching calls for humble learning. That teaching calls for us to sit under it. Now, let's, let's play what Paul's not saying again. All right? What's he, not, what's he not saying? Well, just because women are being addressed, and we'll get to that in a minute, I promise we will, eventually, um, that doesn't mean that men should learn argumentatively, that men should learn arrogantly, or that men should learn unsubmissively. No, no, men too should learn quietly and in submission or submissively. But here's what I think is the most provocative part of this passage. I really do. I think this is much more provocative than the women bit. It's what this verse calls us to do when we come here, to learn. That's what this verse calls us to do. You see, it's a big ask, isn't it? It's a big ask, if, especially if, you've, if you're someone who's been a Christian for a long time and you've heard so many sermons, so many sermons that go on and on too, uh, or you've had some theological training. Maybe you've been to Bible school or you've been a high achiever at work, had a really good HSC. It's a big ask to expect people to come to church and humbly learn. So for many of us, well, this is a bit of a challenging word, isn't it? Okay, so quiet and submissive learning is for all of us because of what it is that's being taught. Why does it say a woman should learn? And, let, and friends, the very fact that it says that, the very fact that women are encouraged to learn in the first place in first century Ephesus, that was unheard of. Talk about countercultural. This clash with culture, just like the men, women were to learn. So why are the women addressed? Well, it's because of verse 12. The two really should be understood together. The main point in regards to women is actually in verse 12, not so much in verse 11. Verse 12... Well, let's read verse 12, but I want to pick it up from verse 11. So, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission, but the but is there in the original, okay? Uh, But the NIV sometimes takes out those connective words so it reads a bit easier. Um, In this case, I reckon they should have left it in. It's, It's there in the original. So, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission, but I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. So... 
the, woman, the women ought to do this, just like the men, but not do this. So we're thinking now about teaching in God's household. If verse 11 is about learning, then verse 12 is about teaching. We could say that teaching and having authority over complement the learning in quietness and full submission. If learning is the fundamental activity in God's household, then the essential activity in God's household, it makes sense, doesn't it, is the teaching. And if it's healthy teaching, that is the teaching of God's word that conforms to the glorious gospel, then it is teaching with authority. You see, to teach God's word is to exercise authority over people because of what's being taught. So that means we're very careful about who our ribs leaders are. We're very careful about who teaches our kids over in kids' church. We're very careful about who preaches from here because of what's being taught. Now, authority, though, looks a bit different in God's household than it does in the secular workplace or in the world. In God's household, authority, and this is I read this during the week, is not a matter of power and oppression, rights and privileges, titles and pretensions. It's not about that in God's household. No, no, those who exercise authority are themselves under authority. Who am I under the authority of? I'm under the authority of Jesus, aren't I? I'm under his authority and Jesus came to be served, uh, sorry, not to be served but to serve. So you see, to be under authority in God's church, it actually shouldn't be a burden. Uh, but it might take some humility. Okay, so right now you're probably thinking he's trying to avoid the issue. He's not really talking about women much at all. You're right, I am. All right. Okay, the comfort level is about to dip a bit. Here we go. I wonder if you spotted the difference. I'm sure you did. This difference between verse 12 and verse 11. Verse 12 teaching, verse 11 learning. The difference is all should learn, but not all should teach. In fact, just quietly, and we'll look at next, next week, not all men should teach either, by the way. But the point being made here is that those who do teach in God's household are to be men, not women. I do not permit. So the language is, is uh, well, it's, it's straightforward. It's not ambiguous at all. Uh, I do not permit. See, I reckon here is where the collision of cultures is most explosive, uh, where the provocation boils down to, don't you think? In God's household, gender still matters. It's probably what it all boils down to. In God's household, gender still matters. And an expression of that is in the learning, teaching experience, a submission to authority experience on a Sunday morning as we gather together. While women fully participate in the learning, a woman does not do the teaching bit, uh, not if men are involved. Now, I'm not quite sure I can think of anything more provocative than that in our world today. I had a good thing about it during the week. I tried to come up with some other options, but I reckon that'll be a top three for sure. You want provocation? Uh, well, they, they want to clash with culture? That, that, that'll be it, wouldn't it? It's hardly very inclusive, and it's discrimination. You're right. It is. It's discrimination, and it's exclusive. Uh, at the end of verse 12, women must be in quietness, is a better way to put that, I think. Her participation in humble learning in God's household. It's actually the same word again that we came across in verse 11. It's the same word in 2 verse 2. Uh, the older NIVs say in, uh, must be silent. That's not, a, not as helpful. I think stick with the word that we've, we've 
we've stick, stuck with from verse 2 to verse 11 and now uh, to verse 13. Uh, sorry, to verse 12. So when it comes to learning in God's household, when men and women gather together, they are to be fully, in, fully involved, but teaching in this setting is to be done by men. Now, why on earth is that the case? What's going on there? Why on earth is that the case? Well, let's, let's do the what Paul's not saying game again. It's always good fun. Paul does not say that women are not competent to teach. doesn't say that. In fact, if you flicked over your Bible to Titus, it's a few more pages of Titus 2, verses 3 to 5, Paul encourages the women to teach. He encourages the women to teach uh, other women and children. He also commends the instruction of Timothy, uh, the instruction he received when he learned about God, became a Christian, uh, grew in his knowledge. Uh, he received that instruction that, that Paul commends from his grandmother and his mother. Eunice and Lois, was that it? Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1. He also urges all believers to teach and encourage one another as they sing together. So we've done a bit of that today already in Colossians 3.16. And over in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14, women are encouraged to participate in the local Christian gathering by praying and prophesying. And so leading a service like Michelle's doing today might be one example of that type of thing. But these activities are not what's on view in 1 Timothy 2. What's on view here is the regular teaching of God's word in the Christian gathering when men and women are gathered together. So why does Paul give the command that women are not to teach in that gathering? Well, can I just give one more little what's not being said? That's why we're at it. What's not being said? Uh, Paul's not saying, you have to listen carefully, that all women are to submit to all men all the time. No, rather women are to, are to be submissive in church when the teaching is happening to what is taught and those men who are teaching it. Okay, why? Why is this? Well, let's look at this. There's two fun foundational reasons that Paul gives um, in verses 13 and 14. Uh, you can see them on your outline there and uh, obviously in our Bibles too. Look at the first word in verse 13. It's a very important word. It's only got three letters. It says, for. In other words, Paul's going to give the reason why he's given this instruction. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Ooh, okay. It's not the sort of sentence to make us feel comfortable, isn't it? Not really? Um, okay, what's going on here? What's the connection? Paul's taking us back to Adam and Eve. So in other words, we're talking about foundational things here. He's taking us back to creation. So it's outside of any culture. It's Outside of his culture, outside of our culture, it clashes with ours today, we know that. But don't forget, it clashes with Paul's culture in his day too. This idea of women were being encouraged to learn, that clashed with culture. They were encouraged to be educated just like the men, and they were in God's, God's church. So God takes us right back to creation and the way in which God has made us. Genesis 2 tells us that God formed the man first and placed him in the garden to look after it. Creation was good, the Lord said. Friends, let's not miss this really important point that we have a creator. Don't miss that. We have a creator, a maker, a designer, and the design was good. Really important point. But then in Genesis 2 verse 18, the Lord said something was not good. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And we know that this helper, which we'll explain in a minute, so don't get too cranky about that just yet, uh, 
that helper was the woman, Eve. So let's think about the way God has made man and woman. First, partners. Partners, not competitors, partners. A helper suitable for him. You see that? In other words, complementary to him. Complementary. Uh, corresponding to him. Not two identical beings competing. They're complementary. They, they work together. A, suitable, a partner suitable for him. Completing each other. That's firstly, notice the, the emphasis too on, on being equal but different. A, a sameness. So Adam says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I think he gets a bit excited and starts singing a song. That's what I think happens, but I can't back that up with any theological backing at all. Um, anyway, I think that's what happens. Bone of my bones, flesh of my, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. It's, I think it's meant to be beautiful, and oh, this is fantastic. Uh, there's a sameness. They're made out of the same stuff. And both made in the image of God too, as chapter 1 tells us of Genesis, to fill, fill the earth and subdue it. So together they're profoundly different from the animals, but also together they're profoundly different from one another. And it's a difference that works, and God says it's very good. Now, third thing, and this is an implicit uh, in chapter 2 of Genesis, is in God's good design of creation, is what's later called in the New Testament headship of the husband. Now, it's hinted at by the man naming the woman, but this headship carries with it a responsibility of leadership and partnership, or of this partnership. There's a responsibility in marriage. Paul addresses this in more detail in Ephesians chapter 5. I figured that if we're going to do controversial passages, let's do them all at once. Um, so Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which, is, uh, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay. Husbands, surrender your rights. That's what, that's what it says. Surrender your rights and love and serve your wives just as Christ loved the church. Think about that for a while, won't you? Wives, put your trust in your husbands. That's what submission means. Now, this sort of stuff is not going to make us very popular, <laughs> is it? Not really. But here's what we've done in our world today when it comes to men relating to women, thinking we know so much better than our creator. In our efforts to make men and women equal in every respect... Well, we've made men and women competitors. That's what we've done, rather than partners. Now, how's that going for us as a society? How do you think it's going? How's the domestic violence rate going? It's not slowing down, is it? Men are still beating, killing their wives. Divorces, well, they're increasing. In fact, the, the meaning of marriage is... Is, uh, and, the, and what we might call the sanctity of marriage. People might even ask, what's that? The report card is not, po not positive, is it, about how we're going as a society when men and women are relating together. Perhaps God, good, God's good design is good. Back to 1 Timothy 2. 
So God's word comes to us and challenges us. And again, we're left with a choice. Don't forget that choice. We trust God in his goodness, his word, or we conform and cling to the culture of the day, which has hardly been a success when it comes to men relating to women. So that's the first reason Paul gives for his instruction to women, and it's based on the way things are meant to be, the way God originally created men and women. The second principle we're given is in verse 14. It's a bit of a mirror image of the first, and in like, uh, like verse 13, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of like a shorthand statement. It's a summary statement that pricks up our ears and goes, where's that from? I need to do some more reading. It's that type of comment. Okay, so in verse 14, and Adam was not the one deceived... It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So we ought to uh, just make sure I've caught up here. Yes, I have. Good. We ought to be careful, I suppose, not to jump up to conclude, jump to conclusions. What Paul's doing is he's just sim- simply telling us like it is, or like it was, back in Genesis three, and he's using the same sort of wording too as we read. So Eve, as we know, uh, Eve, well, she took it upon herself to doubt God's word. And to doubt that God is good, she followed the serpent's advice and ate the fruit. We read about that in Genesis chapter 3. She gave some to the man and he ate too. And now she summarised, her words, she summarised what happened in Genesis 3 verse 13 by saying, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So Paul's quoting Eve's words. Now they both sinned, but Genesis 3 tells us that they sinned in different ways. Instead of trusting the truthfulness and goodness of God's word, Eve was deceived by the serpent and led into sin and she decided, I suppose, that God is not good and she ate and then she led her husband into that sin. Now what did Adam do? Well, Adam, on the other hand, he had been given the responsibility to delete his wife, but what did he do? He did the opposite. He followed his wife. He disobeyed God by eating the fruit God had told him not to eat and by doing so, well, he abdicated his responsibility of leading his wife. So God's good creative design, remember that God said it was good, that was ignored, it was defied. So at the heart of it was a mistrust of God's ways, his word, a mistrust of God being good. Okay, so now back to God's household, the church. The apostle writes here, we must not reverse God's good created order. Now order's not a great word, design's much better. We don't want to go against God's good design. And this applies to the teaching in God's household. Okay, now I've done my very best to leave as little time as possible to, to look at verse 15. I think we're running out of time. Oh, how's morning tea? No, I think we have to look at it. All right, doesn't matter, that's all right. So Paul's final word in the matter, but the thing is, it reads a bit like, where does verse 15 come from? Man, it's out of nowhere. It's not. It follows the argument. Remember that as we think about it just for a minute or two as we close. Uh, it's, it's a concluding statement of all that's gone before. Okay, brace yourselves. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. Let's knock out a few not-so-good ways this verse has been interpreted or understood. Um, what Paul's not saying. So he's not saying that women will be kept safe in childbirth and will be spared the pain that resulted from the fall. Now, I've been to three births of my three children and I can safely tell you that it was more than a tickle for Michelle. Um, (laughs) 
truth is women still die in childbirth today, so it's unlikely that under, that that's the way this verse should be understood. And also the word used for saved here is always used in the context of spiritual salvation. It's got nothing to do with anything physical. So rule that one out. Another one that Paul's not saying, Paul's not saying that women can be saved by good works or that they earn their salvation by having babies. He's not saying that. Having children has no effect on your salvation with God, your right with God in any way, shape or form. Um, if we just read 1 Timothy and we didn't read any other, any other part in the Bible, we would find that, that that understanding of this verse is completely false. We know that we're not saved by works. We know that we can't earn our salvation. We know that we are saved by Christ's death for sinners. So I reckon there's two other options which I think are helpful. Notice I said two because I'm going to sit on the fence on this one. Um, it's a tricky verse. Uh, the words seem to mean one of two things or possibly both things together. So either what these words mean, and here's one option, is that women will be saved through the birth of the child, the greatest of all childbirths. No prizes for guessing what that birth might be, Jesus. Now it makes a bit of sense, doesn't it? Because we've already been looking at Genesis 3 and perhaps Paul's taking us back there to Genesis 3.15 where we read that one will be born of a woman who will crush the serpent's head, Genesis 3.15. So in that case, the meaning of 1 Timothy 2 verse 15, although, yep, it's put in a pretty funny sort of way, isn't it? Uh, but it sort of makes sense. It's straightforward. Women will be saved like everyone else through Jesus Christ if they continue in faith, love and holiness. That makes a bit of sense. But why did Paul put it that way then? Why did he say that? If that's what's being implied, why did he say that way? I, that's what I'm struggling with. I don't know about you. Perhaps there's another option that might work well with that first good option. That is that women will be saved through being women. Don't jump on me just yet. Don't throw anything at me yet just yet. The most, and the most characteristic and distinctive aspect of womanhood is childbearing. Men can't do that, except if you've watched the stupid movie from Martin Schwarzenegger back in the 80s. Don't worry about that. Um, look it up later. Men can't do it. Men can't bear children. So Paul's saying, don't throw away your womanhood and try to be the same as men. Don't do that. So what I think Paul's doing is it's an affirmation of the goodness of womanhood and indeed the goodness of motherhood. Now, it seems in the Ephesian church, this encouragement was needed against these false teachers who were saying, throw away womanhood, just be like a man. Or you, you, throw it away, throw away the good things of the world that God's given us. Now, so we're not suggesting that all women will be mothers or all women should be mothers um, or must be mothers. We're not saying that. But the goodness of womanhood and indeed the goodness of motherhood will remain and must remain a good thing. Shouldn't lose that. It's a good deed in which women should rejoice and indeed I reckon men should rejoice in it too. Okay. Uh, what have you learnt? <laughs> what have you learnt? Probably ah, all these things going around in your head. That's okay. What have you learned about the word of God? 
Now, if you're anything like me, the word of God challenges, doesn't it? It clashes, it provokes you. So how will you respond? There's that choice again. When we read the word of God, we either continue to conform to the culture of the day, we cling to that as it's the ultimate rule in our life, or we say, no, no, God, you are a good creator who, who knows best, even though it might make us a bit uncomfortable. We know your word is good. We want to trust you. I'll pray in a minute. Uh, friends, if you've got a, a question or you want to talk a bit more, um, I'm going to hang around up here at the front after the service and you can do that. But you can also, if you want to, um, uh, fill out a little comment slip and you can put that in the comment card white box at the back and you can ask a question there. On this particular... Like it's, it's, if you can give your name, that would be great because it's one of those things... I don't think any question arising from this passage is... Um, is a quick answer. So it might be better that, that I can chat with you about it and we can throw around some ideas and so on. Uh, that might be easier than me giving a longer answer next Sunday, which, which if it's a short answer, I might be able to do that, but that might be more helpful. Um, so feel free to take that up or come and see me afterwards. How about we pray? Uh, Father, we thank you for your word to us. Um, Lord, we, we want to trust you that your word is good. And Lord, we know that when it clashes with culture, that's a bit of a challenge. And it does make us uncomfortable. But we want to trust you and uh, help us with that. Uh, guide us. Lord, we ask that you'd fill us with your spirit as we understand your word better. And we live it out in our lives. We worship you in our, in our whole lives. Um, Lord, thank you for a church. We thank you for the blessing is to come together. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you've missed um, a sermon...